Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sports Masala. I'm back here with my brother, Gautam. Gautam, give us a hey. Hey, hey, hey. So welcome back, guys. I know we were super excited from our last episode where we talked about all things cricket and the IPL. I hope you guys learned something and felt like you could connect with the tournament now that it's done. Shout out to Gautam for properly guessing who would win the IPL finals. Great job, Gautam. Another prediction come true, man. We're I think you're two here. for two points this year for you on the on the predictions. What can I say? You're you're doing great, buddy. You're doing great. All right, moving right into our first segment this week with the craziest things in sports. First on the list is John Rahm's crazy shot at the Masters, where he essentially skipped the golf ball three times across the water. And it went right into the hole. I mean, it was immaculate. It landed literally instead of going over the top, he just, you know, like a stone on a lake, essentially just skipped the rock. Instead of skipping the rock, he skipped the ball all the way for an eagle, which was an insane, insane shot. I feel we need the sound effect. It's just like, hallelujah. Like, hallelujah. You know, that's going to be on the top 10 at every sports network for a while. (laughs) Oh, it will be. But you know what? That same hallelujah soundtrack can happen for our second craziest thing, which was DeAndre Hopkins catching a Hail Mary. So as the time was expiring in the fourth quarter, you just see Kyler Murray, the Arizona Cardinals, scrambling out and then decide to just chuck it up there. In between three different defenders, DeAndre Hopkins went up, jump man point, caught that ball and brought it down. And the Cardinals beat the Bills. That was absolutely crazy. A guy, all it took to get was a second-round draft pick and David Johnson. Who would have thought? Yeah, it's it's nuts the Cardinals actually were able to get DeAndre Hopkins. And I think now all we're saved from is watching Aaron Rodgers' Hail Mary pass from a few years ago because that's the last one that was successful. And I know you'll be talking about another one in a little bit as well, Gotham. We will. But first, let's talk about something that is, one, long overdue, and two, really great to see in the sports industry. Kim Ung was hired as the GM of the Marlins, and she became the first female GM in MLB history. She really rose from the bottom, uh, you know, working as a staffer for the team and working her way all the way up. And she's got over 30 years of experience. And honestly, She's just as qualified as any other male candidate. So we wanted to give a huge shout out to Kim Ung, also having some Asian representation uh, in sports management, which is one thing that my brother and I uh, really are pushing for and really would love to see in future generations. I know that some of our guest speakers in the upcoming weeks will be talking about um, female roles and female expansion within the sports industry. So we're super excited to highlight Kim Ung uh, for for her awesome work and for her immense promotion in the world of sports. Yeah, and we want to wish her best of luck, as we do to all the GMs in the league, you know, for support their teams and do a great job. No one wants to see a team that sucks, but best of luck to her. Uh, I hope it goes really well and she doesn't end up out in like six weeks because things aren't going very well. That is true. But, Every, everyone's got to make sure that they're not on the hot seat and give her a chance to leave her impact and mark on the team. Absolutely. And let's go to another hallelujah moment, which I feel like I've been doing a lot of today, which was the Hail Mary during the Tulsa-Tulane game. So a college football game where the number five ranked Tulsa played Tulane. And with about 10 seconds left in the game, Tulsa was down by seven. And this is probably where you consider SVP would say, oh, that's a bad beat because the chances of them getting seven points at this point is very low. So they're probably going to lose. And instead, they decide to throw a Hail Mary and somehow they catch it in the end zone, get the extra point and go to overtime. And at this point, you're like, hmm, can Tulane still hold them off and still get the win? Is Tulsa going to pull a comeback? Well, Tulane gets the ball. Third and goal, trying to go into the end zone. Tries to get rid of it quickly. But wait, he's picked off. And the Tulsa player could go all the way and touchdown. Tulsa get a pick six and win it in overtime after catching a Hail Mary to get to overtime. If that's not a crazy finish, 
I don't know what is. I know you and I were talking about prayers and how if you get a Hail Mary and it works, if you don't win, something's up. Exactly. So that was, that was a crazy moment. And lastly, I want to give a big shout out to Nikolai Geertsen, who was playing in the Danish Cup and scored an absolute beauty of a goal. This wasn't just a long range shot from distance. No, no, no. This was a cross into the box, overhead bicycle kick off the crossbar, comes back to him, and he scissor kicks it into the net to score a goal. It is absolutely insane. He's going to do well for himself. Some team is going to see that and poach him from that poor Danish team. Well, I don't know about that, but it was definitely a sensational goal and maybe even up for a Puskas award this year. Who knows? You want to tell our listeners what a Puskas award is, bro? I'll let them do their own research. All right, guys, you have something to <laughs> some homework to do from listening to the podcast. <laughs> Congratulations. We just lost 10 listeners. And with that, we're going to wrap up our craziest things in sports. And we're going to move on to our deep dive this week. And this week, our topic is drum roll, please. Tennis. And we are lucky to have basically an expert on tennis here with us today. My brother. So welcome, Anna. Thank you, bro. Appreciate the time. So I want to go ahead and talk to you today about some of the various aspects of tennis and the sport as a whole. And I'd actually like to start with the two Grand Slams that just finished, which was the U.S. Open in August, and then Roland Garros, which just happened a couple of weeks ago. And this is kind of rare, the fact that we had two Grand Slams so close together. You know, sometimes I feel like the French Open and Wimbledon is a little close, but you usually get at least like a month and a half, almost two between them. And this was definitely shorter. We had some players who didn't actually come to one to go to the other. But what do you think was the impact of having two Grand Slams so close together? Well, I think you, you said it well, is that there were certain players who essentially hedged their bets and said, hey, I'm you know good on hard courts, and so I'm going to play the U.S. Open, or I'm better at the French like Rafa is, and ended up saying, okay, you know what? I'll play both because Rafa's just a warrior, but, uh, you know, hey, I'm better on clay. I'll just wait it out and play the clay tournament season. So you definitely saw probably more variety and people who you've never heard of before playing in a lot of these tournaments because a lot of the big names just didn't make it. But how does that work in terms of rankings, right? Because don't you get points for every tournament? And if you just don't show up to a grand slab, isn't that a huge source of points? Yeah, so how the points actually work is that you get a bunch of points for playing in the four Grand Slams and the eight mandatory ATP Masters 1000 tournaments, which leads to the final, which is the NITO ATP Finals, which ends the kind of ranking period. And so based on your results there, you get a certain amount of points for each tournament. Obviously, the Grand Slams have more points. And what also happens is if you are the current champion or the holder of a title of a grand slam and if you don't retain it you actually lose points so it's almost like you have to keep playing at a similar level in order to maintain the points from the same year year on year to keep up your ranking as a player so with a lot of new players coming in it's you know pretty it used to be fairly stacked on the women's side with just serena and on the men's side with Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Nadal, and Andy Murray for a time period. They're essentially the big four. But now what's happened is you see a lot more younger players getting an opportunity to play. I know we'll be talking about this, but on the women's side, there's been a lot of changes. And it seems like there's a new champion almost every every season and every year for each of the tournaments. Whereas on the men's side, you pretty much see the same three guys battling it out every time. Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. So... With that, a lot of younger guys this year have been able to bump up their rankings. So you see a guy like, you know, Yannick Sinner, who's now in the top 30. He was out of the top 100 last year. And so the more tournaments you play, the higher your ranking and the better you do in those tournaments, again, the higher your ranking. But what's the calculus there? If Nadal decides just not to play in the U.S. Open and last year he was in the finals, isn't he going to have a ton of points that he's going to lose for the next year? Won't that drop his ranking and rating for all the future Grand Slams next year? which theoretically could put them in a worse bracket? Or are they sufficiently shielded from any of these changes due to COVID? 
There is no shielding of your ranking due to COVID, unfortunately. If you choose to opt out of a tournament, that's on you. The only thing that happens then is say this year, Nadal doesn't play the US Open and he was the previous winner the year before. So in that, in the year where he opted out, he loses all of his points for, for that specific tournament. But then the next year, he starts from zero. So even if he plays the first round and wins, all of a sudden he's accumulating points that he didn't have the year before. And that goes into factoring for your ranking. Each Grand Slam operates slightly differently. Some base their rankings on ATP rankings, whereas tournaments like Wimbledon base it on what your past performance at the tournament has been. So say, for example, Roger Federer, he's been injured this year. But if he won Wimbledon last year and he comes back and plays the following year, it's going to be based on his performance. So even if he's not, you know, a top 10 player, which, you know, it's probably not going to happen until he retires. If, if for whatever reason he's outside of the top 10 because he's lost so many points this year, he still might be ranked the number one player at Wimbledon because he won the year before. And so it's interesting. It really just varies depending on the tournament. Very interesting. So we have these couple, three guys on the top of the men's circuit, and they're like the elite, elite men's tennis players. But are there different levels to men's tennis and women's tennis across the world? Is it, or is it just the Grand Slams, just those top 10, 30 players that really are competing? Yeah, so there's actually a number of different levels. Again, like most sports, there's almost, there's like an amateur level, there's an up-and-coming level, there's, you know, semi-pro and then there's a professional level so similarly in tennis it's the atp tour followed by the next level down which is the atp challenger tour the third level is the futures tournament so essentially all the guys either coming out of college more than 16 at this point a lot of parents are pushing their kids a lot harder and they're getting to play in the atp tournament a lot faster um so it used to be that you know the futures tournament would be guys finishing college, starting to play professionally and thinking of it as a career. And now it's, you know, 14 and 15 year olds who've been dominating their age group who are all playing in these ATP challenger tournaments. So it's essentially a four tiered approach, similar to what we saw in the British Premier League, where we have essentially the the Premier League and then three subsequent divisions underneath it. Of professional football, because there is non-league football as well in England, which is the fifth and sixth tiers of the National League conference and such. And it's the same way in tennis. We have club and then recreational below that. Um, so you have club players. Um, I play for for a club and I try to play men's USTA tournaments. That's, you know, some someone at around my level. And then there's recreational where, you know, you're going out with your friends and hitting the ball around the court and enjoying your time. Ah, so perfect for me, Sir Lobelot. <laughs> Which we will talk about later in our jargon corner about the way that Gotham loves to play tennis. <laughs> we will, but actually speaking of the actual game, right, and the different components of it, what do you feel is the most important part of tennis or what the most important component of the game? You know, so a lot of people think, oh, big serve, serve and return. That's it. That's the most important thing. Some players love a ground game, neck game. You know, like what do you feel is the most important? If you had to break it down as one component, what do you think is the most important component of tennis? Tennis is a mental game, unlike a lot of other sports. You can have a great serve. You can have a great return. I mean, I could point to specific players even who had one thing better than the other. So take, for example, Andy Roddick. He won, I think, one Grand Slam tournament, the U.S. Open, and he used to clock serves at 150 miles an hour. That's really fast. I mean, on average, the men's circuit is around 125. Serena, again, is a monster on the women's side is serving 125. But that's like an that's like a really fast serve. 135, 140 is just getting to be really crazy. But he didn't win a ton, right? He was he was always making, you know, the quarters and the semis, but the ser- a big serve only gets you so far if the rest of your game isn't good. So let's not chalk it up to serve and return. Again, Novak Djokovic, phenomenal returner, but he's got great all-around play. He's got a great serve, great ground game, great returns. And so when you have all of that combined, it becomes more of a mental game. So let's take a great example, right? Um, Medvedev and a lot of the younger players are trying to do underhanded serves. 
And it's kind of goes against the unwritten rule of tennis that you don't do that. It's not illegal, but it's not a, it's not a classy move, shall we say. And so when you have really kind of elegant by the books, tennis players like a Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, it really gets under their skin that, you know, younger players think that that's acceptable in the game just because it isn't said that it's wrong. So for these guys, Djokovic really takes it personally and that's one level of his game that he still has room to work on. I would say in Nadal and Federer, even if someone who's younger does something silly like that, they just kind of brush it off and take it as this kid knows he can't beat me on the court playing properly. So he's going to try any kind of quote unquote underhanded pun intended tactic <laughs> to exactly but it's tactic to to win or gain an advantage. And I think that's where Nadal and Fed really have the advantage over Djokovic is that their mental game is great. You know, they could be down two sets to none against a complete no-namer and pull back all three sets. Usually when you're down in a five-set match on the men's side, you almost feel like you're down and out. You're like, now I have to win the next three sets in a row and I've already lost the first two. So how do you get your body to be like, no, I still have a shot. I need to keep playing and move ahead. So I would say more than anything, it was a mental game. I know that, you know, Appa used to always watch us when we were playing and point to our head and say, you know, you didn't miss that shot because you didn't know how to make it. You missed that shot because you were overthinking it. And I think, you know, now as I'm getting older, I'm like, darn, he was right. And I don't like to admit that, but hey, Appa, good on you for, uh, for drilling that into us as uh, kids. And there you have it, folks. No matter how skilled you are in each component of the game, you really need the mental attributes to bring it all together. And speaking of mental mistakes, is it? I heard Novak Djokovic hit another line judge. What happened there? The last time didn't go so well for him, I thought. So yeah, Djokovic ended up hitting a line judge this time around. Kind of highlights the point of not having the same mental fortitude that a Nadal and Federer would have at the U S open. He hit a line judge because he got upset about his level of play and about the, the better play of his opponent. And that's something that's really not acceptable in the world of tennis and really isn't acceptable in any kind of sport, that kind of retaliation. I don't think he intended to hit the line judge, but he should be aware that if he's you know going to peg the ball around on the court, there are other people there and that they could get hurt. This time around, not so much his fault. He was running for a ball. And if you've ever watched Novak Djokovic, he loves to stretch and kind of squash slap the ball back. This time he just stretched too far and smacked it. And it went and hit a line judge who was sitting on the side of the court. So probably did more damage to this line judge than he did to the one at the U.S. Open. But uh, this time around, it, it, it was less so of him losing his cool and more so him just trying to go for a big shot off a, off a killer shot from his opponent. So I think we give him the benefit of the doubt the second time around much more than we did the first time around, but uh, it is something to watch out for. Now it's kind of happened twice in the same year. So I think people are going to be, you know, probably be more conscious of it than, than they were in the past. But I take it if, as long as it happens within an event, Right. Like even in football, right. If you accidentally run into the line judge while you're running a route or something, you're not flagged for that. But if you do it after the play, you're flagged and ejected typically. Right. There's a difference, different exactly. standard. Right. In the middle of the game, you can't be held to the same standard of I know what I'm doing. I'm doing it for the play as opposed to, oh, it's after the play. Now I'm consciously doing something that's not allowed. Yeah, exactly. OK, well, that's good to hear. It was another mental breakdown. We don't just don't like to see that, you know, we like to see the game for the game. And appreciate it as is. Okay. I want to switch tracks a little bit here. And we've been talking a lot about the men's game, right? And the big three. But I want to talk about the women's side of the game. And specifically, we keep seeing new lady singles champions. It's amazing, right? I mean, clearly, there's so many talented female players out there. And they're all... well. Many of them are getting opportunities to win Grand Slams, which is amazing. But we don't see that level of consistent dominance by a few players as we do on the men's side. Why is that? 
Yeah. So in the last few years, we've seen a lot more new women coming to the front and winning a lot of Grand Slam titles. I would attribute a lot of that to kind of the aging process of Serena and Venus. Apart from maybe the last five years for the you know preceding 15 years, it was Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Kim Kleisters, Justine Ennen were like the four dominant, you know, women's tennis players. And then Maria Sharapova for a while there before she had some shoulder injuries. But it was predominantly Venus and Serena either playing each other in the finals or playing one of the other opponents in the finals. And I think we got used to that. Almost like how at this point we're used to the big three on the men's side. We got used to Serena and Venus always being in the finals and honestly dominating their opponents, irrespective of who was on the opposite side of the net for them. What's happened recently is Venus has had her own health issues and Serena is still Serena. I mean, she doesn't play any warm-up tournaments or anything else other than the Grand Slams and she still makes the semifinals or the finals, which is insane. I mean... Most players do warm-up tournaments, you know, to get their body ready for a specific surface. She doesn't do any of that. She's just, she shows up at the Grand Slam and plays and wins. And so I think we've been spoiled for a while that Serena and Venus were dominating so much. And I just don't know if any of the young players have really kind of grown into that role of saying, taking the mantle and saying, you know, it's my time now. Serena and Venus have kind of, pass the torch on to the next generation at this point. And I just don't see anyone who's really willing to take up that mantle or torch. If you look at maybe the last, you know, eight Grand Slams, there have been different winners of the last eight. And Serena's been on 24 for, I think, at least the last six Grand Slam tournaments. And she's trying to beat Martina Navratilova, who is like literally a legend in women's tennis, and Billie Jean King, who are essentially defined women's tennis as a whole. And so I just don't know that any of the younger kids, which is kind of crazy. I mean, all of them have won between the ages of 19 and like 24. And so out of the new crop of youngsters like Naomi Osaka, Ash Barty, Simona Halep, and even Igas Viatek, who was a qualifier at the French Open this year, it's unbelievable to see that there's this much variety in winners on the women's side. And I'm just kind of waiting to see which of those young female players are ready to take up that mantle when Serena officially retires uh, and the next kind of generation feels the load off of having to play or beat Serena in every tournament. True, because I remember my favorite women's tennis player. Unfortunately, she was not able to win many majors, but good old Carol held the number one seed for ages on the women's side of the tour. And I think that goes to show the fact that if you, you don't need to necessarily win the Grand Slams to necessarily be the number one female player in the world. Caroline Wozniacki did it for more than 50 weeks, was the number one seed, and did, did not win a Grand Slam major in that period of time, which is something you don't see in any other circumstance, even now. You know, all the people who are number one have gone on to win a Grand Slam, and she took a very long time for that to happen. And it's sad to see her gone. But good old Carol, wish her the best in her retirement. But it's definitely sad to see some of the old faces that you grew up with no longer in the game. And I'm looking forward to seeing which other female player really breaks out and goes on to hold that number one seed, just like how she did for many years. And speaking of that, who are the breakout stars from this year on the circuit? So I'll give you two names on the men's side. The women's side, as we just talked about, is a lot harder to pick because it's pretty much a toss up at this point who makes it through and who has a great, you know, couple weeks of the tournament. It's really, really hard to pick on the women's side. But the two young guys who I've seen who have really shined this year are Yannick Sinner and Felix Oje Aliassime. Both of those guys are hard hitters. I mean, for Young guys, they put some serious mustard behind the ball and are really able to hold their own. I think for them, the challenge is really going to be what the new age crop, who is a little bit older than them, are facing, which is playing their idols and playing their idols at Grand Slams in moments when they're like, man, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer just don't have that more in the tank. And that gets to them while they're playing. 
So if you look at all of the the next the next level up from a Felix Ogiasim and Yannick Sinner is the Zverevs, the teams, the Sitsipas, the Daniil Medvedev who beat Nadal at the ATP finals. It's a lot of young guys who are facing their idols, which is again, kind of crazy to think how long Nadal, Federer and Djokovic have been dominating the circuit that the guys who idolized them growing up are now playing them as opponents. And so it's going to be really interesting to see whether both of those guys with dominant ground games can hold up to that, again, mental fortitude that's required to be a champion. Dominic team showed that. And we talked about it in one of our earlier episodes where he held on against Zverev. That just takes a sheer number of times that he lost to Nadal, Federer and Djokovic to learn what it's like to play them. And, you know, this time around, none of them were there and he played a different opponent. And so, you know, even though he was down in the final set tiebreak, he pulled it together and won. But it's one of those things where, it again highlights why you need that mental fortitude. And I just hope that these guys with their great all around tennis game can raise their level up to, to really, you know, not really dethrone, but essentially come into their own within the tennis space. Absolutely. You mentioned their performance at some of the grand slams and the majors this year. And I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper into the major component of that and some of the technology that we've seen that's being utilized at the majors currently. And a lot of this comes down to Hawkeye implementation, I feel. I think in every sport, we're starting to see this. What's the process for challenging the referee or the umpire's views, right? When they make a call, we may not agree with the ref, or it may be a blatantly wrong call, or it might be a super, super close call that, you know what, it's really hard to tell even for a Hawkeye or for a video review. And we've seen that in football, right? With some of the challenges, we see pass interference in the NFL, that kind of, we stop being able to challenge that. We see it with VAR, which is very questionable. We've mentioned, we've talked about that a little bit in the past as well. And Hawkeye, and it sounds like that should be something that's standardized across the majors, but it's not. So how do we justify that? And what do you think is the path forward? Yeah, so Hawkeye implementation has been a point of contention across every major, especially highlighted at Roland Garros. So depending on the surface, the ball actually leaves a mark. And so the thing with any digital filming technology is that there is a margin of error in all of those things. And so the French Open believes that, hey, we can see the mark. We can see if the ball went out or was out on the line or within the you know, court. And so they think, hey, our refs have been trained. They can make that call. Whereas at other tournaments, it's a hard court and a grass court. It's a lot harder to see a ball mark and they don't leave marks on the court. You will hear a lot of club and recreational players say, hey, that was a great serve. It left a mark. And then they'll point to something on the court. I will call a kibosh on that one. It's a lot harder to see a mark on a hard court than most people make it out to be. It is not always obvious. Are you sure my 70 mile an hour serve doesn't leave a mark on the court? I thought I was just blazing those serves. I plead the fifth. (laughs) But uh, yeah, if someone is saying that they can see the mark... Go take a look at it for yourself because it's probably not happening. But to the Hawkeye point, you know, on the other courts, it is really hard to see the ball when it's moving at 120 miles an hour. And, you know, if you blink as a line judge, that that's it. What do you say? Was it in or out? And it's your call. Um, so I think challenges are an important aspect of the game. I think there's always room for improvement, but I would say compared to a lot of other sports, Hawkeye has been pretty good when it comes to tennis. It is one of those things where it does slow down the pace of the game. And so some players use it tactically rather than to actually challenge the call. I know that there have been a lot of matches where, you know, Nadal or Federer after a really long point will be gassed because, you know, they're human too. And, you know, they need a breath. And even if they know their shot is out, they raise their hand and challenge it because they're like, you know what, that gives me, you know, 30 seconds more of gas time that you can, you know, catch your breath and get ready for the next point. So I think it works pretty well. It would be nice if it's standardized across tournaments and the grand slams, but at the current moment, I feel like it works well for 
most of the time there are obviously, you know, instances when the ball is, you know, one 32nd of a millimeter away from the line or on the line and Hawkeye calls it in or out. But again, margin of error, and that's going to happen with a human judge too. So I think at the end of the day, it works, it works well enough for people to continue to use it. So you think it should be employed at Roland Garros going forward or no? I don't think so. I think that's up to the tournament referees. I standardization is great in some ways, but I think at the end of the day, like human touch, especially in a game like tennis is, is important, right? Again, going back to that mental part of the game, it's, do you hit a drop shot? Do you swing through the ball on an approach, right? It really comes to that split second judgment and decision. And I think when an umpire has been trained properly, that they can do a good job. I want to actually touch back on a point you mentioned where we said that players would essentially use the challenge to get a small timeout or a break. How does that work in tennis? Because in other sports, like the NFL, you can challenge and you technically get the break there. But if you're wrong, you lose a timeout, right? And in sports without timeouts, like it's seemingly in tennis and soccer, in soccer at least, the review comes from upstairs. You don't get to challenge it. You know, VAR or the guy, the fourth official looks at it and says, okay, yeah, we should look at this. It's not the player saying, hey, you need to look at this. But in tennis, they can challenge. So what's their loss for if they get a challenge wrong? Sure. So every player starts a set with three challenges. And what ends up happening is if you challenge a decision and you win, you keep that challenge. If you lose your challenge or you lose that decision, then you lose that challenge. And so then it essentially is if you lose all three, you're out of challenges for that set and you have to wait till the next set. So say, for example, you burnt your last challenge and then the next point is one where the ball is really close and the umpire rules against you. You can't challenge that. That's just bad luck. Um, so you want to make sure that you, you know, just like in other sports, hold on to those challenges and use them appropriately. They don't roll over set to set. So, you know, if you are feeling it towards the end of the first or the second set, you know, maybe you use it as a tactical thing. But again, you don't know if that's what's going to need to happen or if you're going to have a, the next point where you wish you had that challenge back. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it comes down to a personal decision and it can't be from the coaches. So again, tennis is a very individual personal brain space type of game. If you feel like it's in a lot of the times your gut might be right. So you challenge those calls. There's a lot of times when, you know, the ball went by you or you were looking the wrong way and you know, you either take it or you just cross your fingers and hope for the best. But uh, yeah. So just use your challenges wisely as, as in any other sport. And not just as glorified timeouts. Exactly. Okay. I want to move a little bit away from specific players and specific majors and move a little bit back and look at tennis. And how does that feature in the overall sports marketplace? You know, in America, we see the big four, right? Is the NFL, MLB, NHL, and the NBA. Where does tennis fit into the overall sports marketplace? Yeah, so tennis is obviously a lot smaller of a sport than you would see across maybe the MLB, NBA, NFL, just in terms of revenue, right? They have four major tournaments. The stadium's capacity is a lot smaller. There's a lot fewer matches to watch. And the opportunities for fans to come and see them play is a lot more, but it's also spread out geographically, right? So there's a lot of tournaments in Europe. There's a lot of tournaments in Asia. There's a lot of tournaments in the U.S. But, you know, if I live in Pennsylvania and I you know, there's a tournament in California, I'm most likely not flying out to California to see that tournament. So it all ends up being based on local tournaments. But from the data that is out there, the US Open is the largest and most valuable tennis tournament anywhere in the world. And that comes down to, again, sponsorship revenue. There's a lot of money that comes in from the big sponsors like Chase and Wilson, who are the ball sponsors, you know, you see those big yellow balls that kids hold up and want to get signatures for. I know we had them and, you know, we were flocking to the practice courts to get signatures. So I know we've been lucky enough to go to Wimbledon, which was an amazing experience. But again, the, the, the court capacity is a lot smaller. You're looking at maybe 10,000, 15,000 people at the most. And Arthur Ashe is the biggest stadium of the ball and it's at 20,000. A football game 
usually would have between 70 and 80,000. And as a UMich alum, you know that your games are, you know, well over 100,000 people pre-COVID. And, you know, the the gate revenue is just not there. So on average, like the U.S. Open is bringing in about $300 million in revenue, which is a lot for tennis. What is interesting and something that you don't see in a lot of other team sports is that individuals aren't getting paid a ton of money like how you would see an NFL player getting a four-year contract for $100 million or, you know, Anthony Davis, um, you know, possibly getting a max contract with the Lakers. The numbers just don't work that way. If you win the U.S. Open, which has the biggest purse, the winner gets $2 million. And so if you think about it just from a number standpoint, a lot of these players have to have external sponsors and all kinds of stuff in order to really make a living out of being a tennis player. So even though it is a smaller market, it is an expensive sport and a ton of fun. And if you're interested in getting out there and playing, there are a ton of rec rec leagues that I would highly recommend people get involved with. I know for me personally, we played around Robin at a resort down in Disney, I think almost 15 years ago now. And the guys that we played against were two 80-year-old grandpas And apart from not being as fast as, you know, the then 12 or 13 year old self that I was, they were phenomenal. And I really use them as inspiration to keep playing because tennis is a lifelong sport and you can play it no matter how old you are. And I think that's something wonderful about the game that you don't always see in a lot of other sports. Absolutely. And Getting to that note of recreational playing, right? Tennis is not just a professional sport. You obviously don't need 52 players on each side of the ball or even 11 on 11 to get the job done, right? Tennis, you could play with two people. And especially now, as we've seen this year, with the impact of COVID. No. And especially, especially now with the impact of COVID-19 this year, what do you think is going to be the impact of this virus on professional tennis and recreational tennis going forward. Is it safe to play? Yeah, I think the USTA has done a really wonderful job of highlighting how much tennis is an alternative to getting out and, you know, exercising during the COVID times, just because it does, you know, require someone across the net. And if you don't have that person, you can always hit against the wall. That's just you, you're outside socially distant. And if you are playing with somebody else, the rules are that, you know, you guys don't share the same balls. You have different balls with your name on it so that you guys aren't, you know, touching anything. Usually tennis is a very, you know, high camaraderie sport when you're, even when you're playing against one another, you really, you know, appreciate the quality of the other person that they bring to the game. And so, you know, there's a lot of high-fiving, a lot of fist bumps, a lot of, you know, hugs at the end of the game. Um, even if you win or lose. And I think, again, that sportsmanship is something that I really appreciate about tennis. But um, now with COVID, it's kind of a lot of, you know, racket bumping, uh, you know, making sure that you're not, you know, exchanging tennis balls too much. Tennis is a rare sport where you can actually play it socially distant from somebody else. And so, you know, my buddy and I, end up going out and we play outside under the lights at night and you know it's just the two of us and so it's really nice to be able to get out and actually you know breathe in some fresh air and not have to worry about it now that COVID is getting worse it is putting a lot of strain on indoor tennis facilities so you know try to find your your close friend or your family member who you can get out with. And it's a lot of fun just to get out, run around and, and hit the ball. I know it's been a great stress reliever for me throughout my life. And on the professional side, there's a lot of push from various regional tennis organizations to either halt or not host the Grand Slams this upcoming year, which would be really sad to see, but given player safety and wanting to make sure that they don't have to travel to different countries to play. I think it is a logical step. The hope is that we're, as a society, are able to get this virus under control, and hopefully we'll be able to see the best tennis players out there at the Australian Open in a few months here. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we can get this stuff under control. Well, thank you very much, Anna, for being our deep dive expert today. Really appreciate your insight into the tennis world. And with that, I want to actually move on to our next section for today, which is our jargon corner. And we've got a number of terms here that since you're the tennis expert, I'm going to need you to define for me. 
Are you ready, Anna? Absolutely, bro. Let's hit me with your best shot. Okay. <laughs> saw the pun there. I saw that. <laughs> well, I'm going to hit you with my best shot, which is a tweener. What's a tweener? So a tweener, unlike a lot of other things, is a between-the-legs shot. It's immensely difficult, and people typically hit it when they're facing away from the other, from their opponent. So essentially you're running away from your opponent. They've lobbed you. And then what you do is you wait for the ball to drop ideally to a low enough height. And then you slap the ball in, in between your legs and win the point. But the crazier thing is that there's actually a long history to the term tweener in tennis that even I was not aware about until recently. So the term tweener was actually made popular by a tennis player who was just trying to learn how to play tennis. And his name is Guillermo Vigas. And he saw a, an advertisement for a polo player in the seventies where he hit a backward shot between his horse's hind legs. And so he was like, Hey, that looks amazing. Let me try that on the tennis court. And that was the origin of the original tweener for tennis. So kind of crazy that that's where it came from, but not surprising that polo uh, is the reason for, you know, skeptical, sketchy shots. Definitely don't try that at home. You know, if you're a professional, they make it look a lot easier than it is for self-preservation. I would not recommend that as your number one shot when you're playing tennis. Just throwing that out there. You know, I think that's probably very, very good advice. Let's move on now to our second term, which is the term break. Break sounds like a pretty normal word. I broke your DS. You broke my heart. There's a lot of reasons to say break, but what does that mean in tennis? So a break is when people are playing tennis, you are going to win the game on the other person's serve. So if you're serving against your opponent and you win that game, that means you held the game. So you held your serve. So you won your service game. Whereas if you break, that means that you won the other person's service game. So you essentially broke their, you know, their, their winning of their own service game. So that's what a break is in tennis. It's okay, not a water break. It's not, you know, Nadal aligning all of his water in, you know, a very specific format. <laughs> so, you know, breaks are good is only when it's not on your serve. If you're getting broke a lot, maybe time for a little bit more practice. Absolutely. Oh, and this next one, you know, I can't just say this question to you. I got to sing it. What is love? Anna, please tell me. Anna, please tell me what is love. Well, definitely not that, but I loved the musical interlude that you just dropped there. So in tennis, they have a unique way of keeping score. And it's actually based on the clock. So initially, it would be the first point would start at zero. The second point would start at 15 seconds in. The third, the third point would start at 30 and then the fourth point would start at 45. The problem is by the time they got to four, the 45th second on the clock, they were getting tired. And so that's why it's actually like essentially zero, 15, 30, and then 40 now when it comes to scoring. And instead of saying zero, because who likes to say that you have zero points on the board? So they said, let's make it love. And so it's love all when you start at zero, zero. That's how you keep score. Uh, and then you work through to 15 love, 30 love, 40 love. And then if you win the fourth point in a row, you get, you win the game. And that's how you hold. You definitely don't want to be at love 40 because guess what? The other person is at 40 and you're at love. You want to get as far away from love as you possibly can. Well, thank you very much for explaining love to us, Anna. I did not know you were a love expert as well. Moving on from love, why don't you tell us about bagel? Because that just sounds like a nice dish that you have for breakfast. You put a nice spread cream cheese on it, mm, toast in the oven. So what's a bagel in tennis? Well, I'm glad you asked. It definitely isn't a warm, toasted piece of bread dressed with cream cheese. 
Although you know how much we love bagels in tennis, you definitely do not like bagels, donuts, whatever circular object you want. A bagel is a term that refers to your scoreline. So, if someone gets bageled, that means they lost six nothing, and six is the number of games you need to get to win the set. You have to win by two. So if you get to five all, you have to play until seven. So you definitely do not want to get bageled. I have been on the receiving end and the delivery end of bagels. They are not fun either for the winner or for the or for the loser because it just hurts. You almost feel bad for the other person that you beat them so bad that they couldn't even get a game off of you. So if you're ever encountering a bagel, I just hope you're not on the receiving end of it. You know, it didn't feel so bad when I bageled you. So I don't know what you're talking about. Just kidding, folks. That never happened. But that's probably because I was always throwing up the moon ball. So Anna, what is a moon ball for our audience? So a moon ball sounds exactly what it is. Have you ever been a kid and you look up at the moon? You want to hit the ball as high as you can so that it hits the moon. Well. That's exactly what it is. A moon ball is where you hit the ball so high that it takes quite a while for it to come back down. And I will tell you, it's quite a good tactic if you're playing an impatient player because by the time the ball comes down, they get really tired of waiting for it, and then they play an aggressive shot because they don't want you to hit another moon ball. So a moon ball is where you're standing at the baseline, you hit the ball really high, and it takes forever for it to come down. I will tell you, I have played against a lot of those players. It is immensely frustrating. Gotham is by far the expert at the moon ball, though. It's a great defensive stroke if you need some time to recover and get back in place. Caroline Wozniacki was very famous for throwing up a good moon ball once in a while. And it can, it can be very effective. If you have a patient player, though, it is absolutely destructive because they're just going to smash the ball and you're done. But if you have an impatient player and you need to get back to time on the court, it's a good option. But moving on, I want to go to the last term we have this week, and that's ball kids. What does that mean? That sounds very awe in the f- frame of professional tennis. Why do you need a ball kid? And aren't ball kids in soccer too? Like, what's the whole thing? Yeah, so ball kids in tennis actually have the unique responsibility of not only opening up the new can of balls when professional tennis players get new balls, but they're also the ones who you see running across the court all the time, collecting it. It's actually a very unique process for how they get selected. You actually have to audition and try out, and there's a number of different steps that are involved in even being selected as a ball kid. And it's quite a prestigious um, position to be in, almost something that you could put on a resume later on in life because it's so unique. Um, These kids essentially go through grueling training and, you know, they can't fanboy or fangirl any of their favorite players. They have to be like very stoic and do their job. And I will say, if you look up some kid, some ball kid highlights, there's some really great ones out there. I mean, the kids have to be like quiet and, you know, non-partial, but then, you know, if they get hit by a ball or if they catch a ball, the players come over and, you know, congratulate them. And it's a really unique experience, but the ball kids play a really integral role in keeping the game of tennis moving. Um, It's definitely one of the things that, you know, I wish I could have done as a kid uh, and really envied the kids who were on the court with a lot of my tennis idols. Awesome. Well, everybody, that concludes our jargon corner for today. Thank you very much for all those insights into what all these very tennis-specific words mean. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you, bro. Glad to be of assistance. All right, and moving on to our last segment for the day, our fan favorite, trivia. So, Gautam, I know that last time we talked about cricket, and we were really excited to see if we could test and push your cricket knowledge to, to the limit. For those of you who missed the last episode, the trivia question was, in which year was the first reported cricket match in the USA. Gautam, you want to fill us in with what your answer was and I will give out the right answer. Well, I don't think you let me really guess last week, but I did give our fans maybe a little bit of a hint because I thought there was at least a region of time which should happen in. And that was between 17 and 1800. Um, But within that, that's probably just a big guess on my part. So I don't know. 1746. Just guessing there, I see. 
I mean, I said between 70 and 1800, which I thought would be reasonable for you to have a cricket match. Um, probably not after 1776. I don't think it would have been there as much. But there was a huge British influence before then, as we know, the American colonies. So I could totally see something in the first half of that or first three quarters of that century. So I'll say right in the middle, 1746. Let's go with that. Seems like a good enough number. All right. Well, can we get a drum roll since you since you nailed it the last time? All right. And the answer is 1751. So you are super oh. close, bro. You you were right on all the logic. Just need to add five years to your guess. So in 1750. Oh, that was margin of error. <laughs> margin of error. <laughs> Gotham likes to drop margin of error as, 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 the, as the centuries go back from the 2010s all the way to the 1700s. But to answer the question, in 1751, the New York Gazette carried the first public report of a cricket match played in New York, which is super exciting. You guys can definitely check it out. We'll try to post the link on social media along with some of the highlights from the craziest things in sports. So moving on to this week's trivia, as we did our deep dive in tennis, Gotham, I know tennis is not your first sport, but let's see how you can do here. What was the original name for tennis? What? You mean it's not been called tennis the whole time? Uh, No. God, uh, I think this predates me because at least all my life, I've only known the name is tennis. So, hmm, I wonder, you talked about polo, some of the terms coming from, they're probably older sports, which also utilized tennis-esque things, maybe like a racquetball or badminton, sort of all similar ends of sports, um, shuttlecock. I don't know. I original name for tennis. You know what? Uh, can we ask the audience here and see what they come up with? I wish we were playing Who Wants to Be a Billionaire. But guess what? If you ask the audience, you will find out on the next episode of Sports Masala. So definitely stay tuned, guys. I will be giving out that answer on our next episode. Thank you so much, Gotham, for playing. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks everyone for being with us today on this latest episode of the Sports Masala podcast. Gautam and I really love your listenership and we hope you guys are excited and participate in the poll for this week's trivia question. And we look forward to seeing you guys all on the next episode. Thank you very much, everybody.